Hey, listeners. I want to tell you about Music Masters Collective, a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. These events give you the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Oteil Burbridge, North Mississippi All-Stars, Brother and Sister, Trouble No More, and many more. This July, Oteil Burbridge will host the 11th annual Roots Rock Revival alongside an incredible group of musicians for a five-day all-inclusive event unlike any other. This once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, masterclasses, song circles, collaborative jams, and so much more. Roots Rock Revival blends the experience of a festival with behind-the-scenes performances and invaluable education from music legends. You won't want to miss it. Packages range from tent camping to luxury cottages to everything in between, and scholarships are also available. Spots are extremely limited, so visit rootsrockrevival.com slash the vault to learn more. That's rootsrockrevival.com slash the vault. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Osiris. So I don't know if this was the case for you, but for me, what leapt out about the Dick's Picks we're going to be talking about today is the fact that it's at Alpine Valley, which is a venue near and dear to our hearts as Midwestern jam band fans. It's a jam band mecca of the Midwest. Absolutely. We're going to be talking about Alpine later in the episode, but I can't help but just reminisce about seeing shows at Alpine and, and what makes that menu special. I mean, I was thinking, I think I've only seen fish there. That's right, because when we went to see fish, that wasn't the first time we saw a concert together, right? We saw fish in Chicago first. Yeah, at the... At Northerly Island, yeah. Northerly Island, yeah, that was the first time. Right. But that was your first Alpine show. That surprises me, being a Wisconsin boy. Why did you never get up well, there? Well, I think because Alpine was a hike from where I was in Appleton. I was, you know, that's about probably close to three hours away. So it wasn't right next door. And I feel like in the 90s, I mean, I wasn't a jam fan in the 90s. So I right. I wouldn't have seen Fish then. I mean, in the 90s, Alpine was either jam bands or like metal bands. And, and, and maybe like Buffett and some country stuff. But it was mainly like Ozfest or... 
fish. Right. Or the dead, like, early in the decade. Or later in the decade, it would have been whatever post-Jerry iteration of the dead was touring at that time. Right. Like, like the dead played there, I think. Not, you know, like, you remember the dead? Right. I, I think the that post, was... The uh, post-Grateful, post-Jerry, the dead. I think the other ones, their, like, first concert might have been at Alpine. So they kind of, like, put a flag in it as a as a Grateful Dead landmark. Do you have any, like, memories that stand out about Alpine for you? Well, this is going to be a show where we're not coy about fish connections, I think, just because I've seen fish at Alpine so many times, including my very first fish show in 1996 was at Alpine Valley. I have seen a band other than fish there. I've seen Pearl Jam, one of your favorite bands. Yeah, you were at the uh, 20th anniversary gig, That's right? right. Yeah, I went up there for that. I was covering it for Spin Magazine. Very highfalutin trip up to Alpine Valley and got to see uh, Pearl Jam and all their buddies play. That was during the period where my interest in them had waned. So I didn't go to that show and I, I would have been, I was living in Milwaukee, so I would have been in perfect position. But like my interest in Pearl Jam wasn't really revived until I saw them at Wrigley Field in 2013 during the famous thunderstorm show, like where they had to stop for three hours in the middle and then they played till two in the morning. And that's still one of my favorite concerts of all time. That was an amazing show. That really kind of brought me back to them. But I'm sad to have missed the Alpine Valley show because I was sort of like, I'm not that interested in Pearl Jam at, at this juncture in my life. You know, listening to Dick's Picks 32, and I think we talked about this a little in our previous episode, I couldn't help imagining like what it would have been like to be at Alpine in 1982. Like if we could have gone to the show. Because we've talked about this before, like when there have been Midwestern Dick's Picks, about like, oh, if we had been of age to have seen these shows, like when they're in our area, it's easier to visualize being at Alpine than it is at the Sportatorium or something. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is only, Madison Square Garden is probably the only other venue we've actually been to in the Dick's Pick series, right? There was one at uh, Hartford, but it was at the Civic Center, not the current Hartford or maybe that is the Civic Center still. Anyway, yeah, as far as being at shows together, we've Madison Square Garden and Alpine Valley from the Dick's Picks venue list. So it, it definitely adds something to the listening experience when you can you can picture it yeah. very specifically. And like Alpine Valley just seems like such a perfect Grateful Dead venue. Yeah. It, it is like in the middle of nowhere, but it's very nice. And in 1982, it would have been even nicer. It's a little bit run down now. Yeah. But it, it uh, was only a few years old at the time. Uh, you know, it's in the middle of nature. It's got this huge lawn. That's kind of like its main feature. On a big hill, like a On huge a hill, giant steep hill. Yeah. yeah, because it's a ski. It's a ski resort basically. Right. So there's all these hills all over the place that people ski on in the winter time, and then in the summer, they have these big concerts there. And I mean, it is like our Red Rocks. You know, this is yeah. like the Midwestern Red Rocks, the very yeah. scenic outdoor music venue. Uh, that draws like these types of bands and it becomes sort of an iconic thing. Although Alpine has fallen off, I think, in a way that Red Rocks hasn't. Red Rocks still has this great reputation and they still do a right. lot of shows and like a range of shows, whereas Alpine seems like a place that is being used less and less. And we'll touch on that, I think, later on in the episode. But right. it just makes me think, you know, of like other Midwestern venues. Right. Yeah, because the East Coast and West Coast get all the love. Yeah, like but, uh, for iconic dead venues. But what, what are the Midwestern venues? Well, I mean, I think, I mean, like Dane County Coliseum seems like that was a place they played a lot. That's the other one that comes immediately to mind when I think about the Grateful Dead and right. like the Wisconsin, Illinois, 
corridor. And that's in Madison, right? Yeah, that's in Madison. I mean, I think of like like crappy venues in Wisconsin that would have been cool to see the dead. Like, I don't know if you're familiar with Brown County Arena in no, Green Bay, <laughs> and which I think is still open, although there's another arena next door called the Resch Center that opened 20 years ago, which is, it's old now, but it was the new venue for a while. But uh, Brown County Arena, it's across the street from Lambeau Field. I don't even know what sporting events they would have had there. I, there, there must be like a minor league hockey team in their past somewhere but i i used to go there in high school to see christian rock concerts like with my (laughs) religious you know i was in church at that time so i remember you know seeing like dc talk at brown county arena and later when i was a newspaper reporter and i was reviewing shows like i saw corn there i saw Mm. uh nickelback there i saw all of the sort of butt rock of the of the era (laughs) because i was reviewing it and uh, I think it's about a 4,000 seater or so. Okay. So I just imagine myself in the 70s, maybe seeing the dead there. Right. That would have been Early kind of like 70s. A, yeah, just like this sleazy venue in Green Bay. Green mm-hmm. Bay is a pretty sleazy town anyway. And that would have been close to me, too. That would have been the closest dead show, probably, that I could have seen if, if I was a teenager or a young adult. Uh, in the 70s. Yeah. Allstate Arena, too, would have been a fun place to see the dead. In Yeah, I mean, they, they played there a lot, right? Did they play so, there? Yeah, when it was the Rosemont Horizon. Oh, okay. Uh, under its former name. So that, uh, I just yeah, feel like from seeing know. Fish there, that's such a, that's another sleazeball. It's definitely venue. sleazy. I don't like that it's up in Rosemont. I was going to say, I, w- I am jealous of the time when the dead would play the UIC Pavilion. Uh, because it's a, it's similar size to the Rosemont Horizon, but it I don't, the the vibe is, is is a lot better because it's like it's got, it, you know it's on a college campus which kind of helps, but it's still in the middle of the city. It's right on the train line. It's very accessible. I I I, I I'm I'm jealous of this idea of like the Madison Square Garden experience where you come out of the venue and you just like spill out into the city with a bunch of like crazed hippies. UIC Pavilion I think gives you probably the best experience of that for Chicago. Like Northerly Island would be nice. Northerly Island didn't exist as a venue as an airport when the dead were around. And of course they played at Soldier Field, but both Northerly Island and Soldier Field are kind of like set apart from the city in a weird way where you almost feel like you have to take a bus <laughs> back into the city because you're way out there on the lake. But UIC Pavilion is like that sort of like urban arena experience uh, that I think would have been a lot of fun. And they played there in the 80s and the 90s before they got too big and had to do the big Soldier Field shows in Chicago. But uh, th- that's that's what I miss. Well, I, I got to say, you know, we like to com- you know, we like to rag the East Coast jam band fans because they're so spoiled. They get tons right. of shows. I'm going to rag on you a little bit for your uh, Chicago privilege, because mm. you're talking like Rosemont's too far for you. Yeah, every right. every time like I've seen Fish, I've had to drive multiple hours. <laughs> Actually, there was one time they played St. Paul. Yeah, we did see him at St. Paul. But, yeah. but I'm used to driving five, six hours to see it's them true. because they, you know, and even like we were talking earlier about Alpine, like when I was a teenager, to see any concert, it was like a minimum two hour drive. Right. So when you're a teenager and I didn't have a car, you know, you have to get permission from your your parents or my mom in my case, and then you have to find someone to go with who can drive you, and you got to have the money to pay for it and all that. So you got some Chicago privilege here because you got yeah. multiple venues. You're talking oh, it's on the train line, so I, I I like 
for that and all yeah. the other things you said about it too. So so you are the East Coaster of our Midwestern <laughs> duo True. here. You are the relative East Coaster. Chicago is the East Coast of Wisconsin. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So yeah. so so I can I basically I can complain in any context. I, yeah, there you go. Which, which is great for me. I can just whine <laughs> with anybody because yeah. I'm always the I'm the least privileged uh, of anyone. You know, speaking of like uh, Midwestern venues, I wonder to what degree like Wrigley Field has eaten Alpine Valley's lunch in recent yeah. years because it seems yeah. like they're getting all the shows now that would normally go to Alpine. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's like. Because that's the thing with Alpine is it's so huge. It's like 40,000 capacity, which is pretty equivalent to what Wrigley Field is, I think, for a concert. Yeah, I mean, people, Alpine Valley comes from the time when they would build these venues in the middle of nowhere. And now people want to do like destination weekends, I think, in cities where they can fly in and stay in a hotel and like, yeah, take the train, take a taxi to the to the show instead of packing up the van and driving a couple hours. So, yeah, it. Uh, it's sad that Alpine Valley is kind of in decline. I'm glad they seem to have a, a slate of shows this summer, so they're still they yeah. survive COVID. Things are different now. That's what I like about Alpine. It feels like you're stepping into like classic rock of the past. It yeah, feels like a '70s '80s venue. I'm excited. I mean, you know, we're coming up on the 40th anniversary of the show that we're going to be talking about today. It's going to be in August, and we're going to be at Alpine Valley right after that. Yeah, like a week after the anniversary. A week after the anniversary. So we're, we're going to be in Alpine in a few months, but we're going to Alpine here. This is a little preview for us, so I'm excited to get into it. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey friends, I'm Sharon McMahon, longtime government and law teacher. And on my podcast, here's where it gets interesting. I dive deeply into the stories you haven't heard about America's greatest thinkers and figureheads. I also interview many of today's leading cultural experts like Adam Grant, Ken Burns, and Patrick Redden Keefe, who share their insights challenge us to think in new and innovative ways. So follow Here's Where It Gets Interesting on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. This is 36 from The Vault. My name is Steve. My name is Rob. 
And we're here to talk about Dick's Picks 32, August 7th, 1982, from Alpine Valley Music Theater in East Troy, Wisconsin. We're back with Brent, finally. Yes, Brent makes his lone season four appearance. Final appearance in the Dick's Pick series. Oh man, criminally underrepresented in Dick's Picks. <laughs> I gotta say though, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna state this at the outset. Brent, the MVP of this set, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Yeah. Love Brent. Wish there was more of him, but <laughs> what you hear is great. And yeah. I think it's a different side of Brent. You know, we're used to him again, late 80s Brent, soulful vocals. Very extravagant keyboard sounds, uh, just like a you know a co-front man type presence. In this show, I feel like he's the most Keith-like that mm. we've heard of him. He's basically just playing piano here, and that's where the emphasis is. And it really shows like what a good just pure piano player he is. And we'll get into that once we talk about the show. But I just want to say that at the outset because I think that's like an underrated aspect of what he brings to the table. We don't, I think, talk enough about like how he could just like rip on piano and mm-hmm. I think hold his own. If you're going to compare different eras of the dead, as good as Keith is, it's like, I think he's bringing a lot of Keith-like qualities to this show for me. Yeah. Yeah. I liked it for, it was clearly sort of like a midpoint Brent's between like we had that late 79 show. I think it was Dick's Picks 5, which was like very, very early. I mean, Brent's first year, right? In the band where he seemed extremely tentative was that the 83 show that was 79 okay 12 26 79 okay because then 83 is right around there I right think. it was right after that okay. yeah that was dick's big six so i like this is sort of like like you were saying it's not quite brent's you know at almost frontman status in the band <laughs> like he was by the end of the 80s but brent's sort of in between where he's confident enough to participate but he's not elbowing people out of the way yet i think it might be my brent sweet spot so i mean nobody no 36 from the vault listeners are gonna be surprised that you like this volume but i will tease at the outset that i really enjoyed this one i liked it a lot i had a lot of fun with this i, I sent some very skeptical texts to steve once we started listening to it just because we had been so immersed in the 70s that going to this just sounded like you know like a baseball bat to the head <laughs> the first time i put it on uh but it really grew on me in a surprising way i think i have to say too that looking at the track list it sets you up for a show that might be a little disappointing because the track list mm-hmm. i think is not terribly enticing there's some songs on here where you're preemptively rolling your eyes. And yeah. we'll get to them. If you've looked at the track list, you could probably guess what those songs are. <laughs> uh, but when you actually listen to the record, skepticism falls away. It sounds really great. And look, I'm on record as a without a net loyalist. So I love the extravagant Brent. I love that era. I love right. him being more out. And really, my biggest complaint about this album is that there's not more Brent. And there... And there's actually shows around this show that I think spotlight him a bit more that I think would have been, it would have been cool to have that element here. We are going to revive, I think, our conversation about complete shows versus surveys. Mm, yeah. You know? There's a lot of like 36 from the vault tropes in yeah. this episode, I think. <laughs> but I do think as much as I like complete because this is a complete show, some of the uh, songs are placed out of order, I think, but it is a complete show. But I don't know think a survey approach might have been good. Maybe mm. an Alpine Valley Stand type album could have been good. Yeah. It's always dangerous when you only give us two discs to chew into because then we start listening to other stuff and complaining. Well, <laughs> I think the two di- I mean, honestly, the two disc to like the two banger here was 
a relief after because we had some heavy meals. Absolutely, yeah. No, I loved the. I loved having only two to swallow this time. Yeah. So I'm not. Ask, I'm not asking for like more discs necessarily. I am saying that maybe you swap out some stuff from this album and put some stuff from another show in. I don't know. I'm gonna make that case later. Mm-hmm. We'll see. We'll see what people think. But before we get to that, let's get to our mailbag. Thank you all for writing in. It's always great to hear from our listeners. And sometimes they educate us. Yeah. They often educate us because we don't know what we're talking about. I think it's clear. <laughs> That's why you like this show. There's there's like other Grateful Dead podcasts where you learn stuff. They're very mm-hmm. well researched. Right. You know, facts everywhere. No facts here. Fact-free zone. We're just talking about the dead. But that that has its place too, right? You know, just to- exactly. It's two guys in the expansive parking lot of Alpine Valley. Yeah, exactly. K- killing time before the show. Exactly. That's the vibe. Talking here. about the dead in a half-educated manner. Uh, that's maybe you feel self-conscious that you don't know much about the dead. Then you listen to our show and you're like, well, okay. I feel <laughs> I feel good in comparison to these guys. I'm not these guys. Right. I'm smarter than these guys. Let's get to our first letter. This is from Matt Minneapolis. Do you want to read this one? Yeah, I'll take this one. Uh, Matt in Minneapolis, uh, your your neighbor yeah. in Minnesota, in the Twin Cities. Yes. Matt writes, guys, the reason there isn't any late-era Brent Dix picks is because of things like without a net. As Dick Latvala often clarified, I don't have control over the multi-tracks. Much like Live Dead, Europe 72, and more, without a net was a multi-track recording. Both the fall 1989 and spring 1990 tours were recorded on multi-track for without a net. So something like Dozen at the Nick was essentially leftover material in the vaults that was the source material for Without a Net. So there's your answer about the lack of late Midland era material for the picks. Hmm. Good point, Matt. I mean, I knew we knew this from the start, I guess, that the the Dick's Pick series was created to release, you know, two track tapes that they had in the vaults, distinguished from the multi-track recordings that they recorded with the intention of actually putting out a live album. These were just like the in-house recordings that the dead made for themselves. I think our complaint though is it's not so much like 8990 Brent, which is as Matt points out documented on Dozen at the Nick and without a net, but I mean there's nothing post Jerry Coma in the Dick's Picks. Brent's era post Jerry Coma, I guess. Like there's like a big hole between like 86 and 90 when Bruce and Vince come in. So, I mean, there could have been like an 87 or an 88 show is I think what we're saying here, right? Yeah, exactly. And so I think this is maybe part of the explanation and it definitely makes sense, but it does seem like there are years that might have qualified for Dick's picks that were Brent era post Jerry Coma that are really good years. There would have been good shows in there that are not represented. I tend to think that it's also due to the fact that that was still relatively recent when, although I guess they were doing 90s stuff too. I, I don't know. I mean, I do think maybe I, I'm a conspiracy theorist here. I do think that there is somewhat of an anti Brent bias in Dick's picks. I, right. Because again, even like when you listen to this show, I think that there were other shows up from around this time that were a little more Brent heavy, where he was actually singing songs, like like as a Brent showcase, that you could have included that were really good shows, but like it seems like this show was picked in part for what you were saying earlier, Rob. You were saying that this is your sweet spot because he's visible, but he is more Keith-like, I think, in this show. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you know, not to put Dave Lemieux on blast or anything here. We love Dave <laughs> Lemieux. But I mean, it, like your, your point about the bias, I think, is confirmed a little bit by the Dave's Pick series, which is also very light on Brent, right? I mean, you've, you've been a subscriber for longer than I have. I'm just scrolling through the dates here. 
And I mean, it's, you know, in, in Dick's Picks, we got maybe 20%, one out of five, not even like one out of six, one out of seven Brent shows. Because there's only been, I think, four Brent shows in the Dick's Picks. Yeah, we had two our first season. Yeah, and that was the but then most. one each season since. So yeah. it's like, you know, five out of 36 or something like that. I'm looking at the Dave's Picks and it seems like the ratio is pretty similar because Dave's Picks is still very 70s heavy, which makes sense. But then, you know, you get like months like May 77 that have just been thoroughly harvested. <laughs> and then, you know, there's there's not a lot uh, from the Brent era, which between the two of us, you're the Brent fan. I'm not the Brent fan. But I really appreciate the curation of the 80s much more at this point than I do curation of the 70s. Like, I feel like at this point, everybody kind of knows, like, 73 sounds like this, 77 sounds like this, 71 sounds like this. So if you put out a good show from 71, I'm like, okay, I kind of know what that's going to sound like. I'll listen to it. It's probably going to be great, but it's not going to be a surprise in some way. Whereas I feel like it's much more important to put out, like, the really strong 80s shows, because there's so many 80s shows. They played so many shows in the 80s. And when somebody who knows the 80s really well, knows what they're talking about, has listened to these tours like Summer 82, and pulled out, like, here's the choice show that really represents this era, and then gives it a nice, if you give it a nice release, and you give it a nice uh, sound upgrade, because that's another thing with the 80s, is that the tapes are kind of wonky, I think, in a lot of cases. But if you give it a good sound touch-up and put it out, it's like a much more fulfilling experience for me at this point, I think. Maybe I've just like crossed like some point to being an advanced deadhead where I'm like, I really get excited about a good 80s show because it feels like you found a sort of diamond in the rough, you know, a new dimension of the band. Whereas a lot of the 70s releases are just kind of like confirming what I already know, like... Yeah, the dead were awesome in 72. I know this. It's like, even if you listen to 70s more than any other era of the dead, it is nice to shake it up sometimes and listen to some 80s. It is like, because it is a different band, you know? Right. It's enough of the 70s where you get that flavor of it, but it's a different spin on it, which is really cool. I I just like the variety aspect of it. Like, I wouldn't want to just listen to 70s all the time. I I, I get sick of the 70s sometimes. Sometimes I'm like, oh, I want some Brent. I want bl- mm. I want to hear like blow away here, you know. I want to hear whatever. I want to hear him do Dear Mr. Fantasy, you know. Right. Go for yeah. it. And I will say too that the more you listen to the '80s, the more you can tell differences from year to year. In the same way mm-hmm. that you could tell differences from year to year in the '70s. And I mean, and Brent is, I think, the one who changed the most as the as the decade went on, where he just became more of a focal point. His uh, keyboards just became like way huger and yeah. a bigger part of the sound. And Yeah, I promised to give my uh, book report on Without a Net last episode, and I did listen to it once. I had a lot of 80s to listen to, 82 to listen to, so I'd, I only gave it one spin. But that was like the impression I got from listening to Without a Net for the first time in a long time is just how massive the sound is on Without a Net. And uh, I think a lot of it is Brent. Because he has just, you know, piled on the effects on his, his keyboards. You also get affected guitars from, from Bob and Jerry, too. But these are the early 80s Brent era sounds a lot smaller to me. And that might be something to do with the recording of like a cassette master versus multi-track recording. But uh, that was the big difference to me like late 80s to early 80s. It's just how big they sound as a band. And they're also just playing enormous venues at that point, too. So, right. I mean, yeah. they, they got to fill... Those stadiums were sound. Listen to us like rave about Brent. I love this. This is great. This is this like- is going to be our most yeah 80s heavy episode. I think you can already tell because I finally have been won over. I'm not going to be like you know season one. I was probably uh, a little snooty about 80s dead and Brent. Love uh, it. Love it. But I think I I think I've been fully converted at this point. So good stuff. Let's get to our second letter here. 
This comes from Nick. Nick did not say where he was from. Nick, why so mysterious? (laughs) He's writing from the Witness Relocation Program, I think. (laughs) It's mobbed up. Hey guys, love the show. I've heard every episode and I'm currently re-listening to the show in between the releases of your new episodes. Looking forward to Dick's Picks Volume 32. Can we get some love for Man Smart, Woman Smarter? (laughs) Two question marks on that. And you should have thrown (laughs) some exclamation points in there too, I think. That Bo Diddley beat can rock the room. Same goes for Ico Ico. But really, if you hear the beginning of Man Smart and don't know what it is yet, it sounds like the craziest warped version of a Not Fade Away intro. Just typing this makes me think of Dead & Company slowly dropping it into their set, one opener, to kick off an entire woman-themed first set in Dallas last fall. An entire woman-themed set. Ooh, the influence of John Mayer. Coming right. in there. The entire amphitheater lost it by the time the lyrics kicked in and we knew what was going on. Keep on trucking. P.S. The Dick's Picks 32 Man Smart is the second highest rated version on Hetty version. So at yeah. least it's Dick's Picks debut is in top form. Thanks for the letter, Nick. I don't want to be too spoilery here because, you know, we're going to be talking about Man Smart, Woman Smarter later in this episode. And it is a Dick's Picks debut. But uh, I have a feeling that Nick is not going to be disappointed by our conversation i know i am shocked by the conversation i think we're going to be having about that song this was not the (laughs) conversation expected to have again i don't want to spoil it too much but uh yeah i think nick might be happy yeah with what we say about that song i want to put a pin in that for later but let's talk about the woman themed set list (laughs) in dallas uh because i'm I'm fascinated by this um i I have dead and co they don't do too much of the gimmicky set list, do they? I feel like that's more like a Phil and Friends thing. I guess they, they played like the Woodstock set list when they played in Bethel last year. They haven't like spelled anything out or anything like that, right? They're uh, like, this I, I, like... I, I can't say I am a close follower of Dead & Co. set list shenanigans. So I, I, yeah, I, yeah. I can't answer that. I mean, like this woman theme set is news to me. Right. Yeah, that surprised me. So you got Brian Odd Women, obviously. Okay, yeah, let's see how many of these you can guess. You got, we got Man Smart, Woman Smarter as a freebie. You guessed Brown Eyed Women. There's seven songs in this set list. So I'm just trying to think of... There was a more obvious cover here, or a more obvious opener than Man Smart, Woman Smarter. That's a woman's name. Oh, like Althea? Oh, no. Bertha. Althea did not make it. Bertha. Bertha. Yeah. So Bertha's in the set list? Bertha's in there. Uh, Althea didn't make it? Althea didn't make the cut, surprisingly, what? and they played one that, um, I guess it is a woman's name, sort of in an Althea vein. Althea would have been the better choice, especially because we know Mayer loves to play Althea. You don't have to ask him twice. Would, like, Ruben and Charisse work there? Because Charisse... Mm, that would have been good, but you're giving him too much credit. Oh, uh, man. There, there was a Dylan cover. Can you name a Dylan cover with a, a woman name? Sarah? Mm, no, that would have been awesome. <laughs> but no, uh, they played Queen, Queen Jane. Oh, uh, Queen Jane. Okay. Yeah. And you got brown-eyed women. You got Peggy O, of course. Oh, yeah. This is one kind of throws me. Uh, Cassidy, which I always thought, <laughs> you know, was about Neil Cassidy. But I guess it's, like, I think I remember reading that it's about two people. I don't know. And I guess the other one's a woman. Oh. Uh, that... They're already reaching by song six. So well, yeah. Somebody didn't give them a whole lot of thought, I think. Well, yeah. <laughs> and, like, you're leaving Althea on the table and you're going for Cassidy? Yeah. I mean... They didn't do Ramble on Rose, I thought would have been an obvious oh, one. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then they... So they closed the set with Sugary, which Sugary is, yeah, it's a Shake It Sugary. It's about a lady named Sugary, I guess. I, but I Al- guess. Althea would have worked a lot better. I mean, they have, like, multiple songs with women's names in the title and that they didn't play, so... 
Denko going for the gimmicky set list, but only giving it about uh, 10 seconds of thought, I think. Uh, that's fine. I appreciate the effort. If we do another season of the show, we might have to do the woman set by <laughs> Denko in, De- in Dallas. I mean, you could have done, they could have done a whole woman show probably, but they just completely yeah. go go off off the theme. It, the second set opens with Deep Ellum Blues, which <laughs> I don't think has any woman content. Maybe it does. Uh, and then a help slip Frank. So yeah, right. they abandoned it pretty quickly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Well. Wow, I can't believe we talked that long about Dead & Co. in this episode. <laughs> this is a yeah wild episode already. So let's dig into the context of Dick's Picks 32. This album was released on July 20th, 2004. Like we said, this is a two-banger, which is like uh appetizer at this point in this season. Right. I mean, we've had six bangers. We've had four bangers. I don't know what's coming up next in Dick's Picks 33. Back to four, yeah. Back to four. So this is a little bit of a break. For us, I mean, not that we need a break from the dead. I'm just saying, it's a little bit lighter of a meal. Sometimes you need like a salad after eating, <laughs> you know, a steak dinner four days in a row. Right, and like I was saying, I kind of appreciated it only being two discs because it gave us, it gave me at least the time to jump around shows, you know, nearby this show, and get a better feel for the context of the tour. Whereas, like, you know, that six banger '77 one. I, I had no time to listen to anything else. No, <laughs> like you just had to listen to that over and over again for research. This one, and not just and not just the dead. It's like you couldn't listen to your wife, couldn't listen to your kids, couldn't listen. <laughs> to couldn't like, listen to any other bands. Yeah, yeah just, you know, my my kids were screaming at me. Pay attention to me, you know. I, Dad, I feel neglected. I'm like, I'm sorry. I have to listen to ten hours of Grateful Dead music for this podcast. So I'm sorry you feel neglected. So I was actually able to spend time with my family. <laughs> while listening to this album. They so appreciate, I appreciate it. Yeah, exactly. Can I just say, too, we've already commented on the shift in album art that we've had. Right. We're, we're now in the screensaver era of, of, of album art, and mm-hmm. uh, which is the worst period. Again, like, Dick's Picks art just got worse and worse as it went along. Right. This album in particular, I think, has, like, one of the worst covers. Yeah, I mean, this. Uh, what did I write in the notes? It, it looks like a dollar store 2001. So it looks like the end sequence of 2001, but if you recreated it on an Apple 2C, <laughs> and, uh, it uh, is does not represent the show at all. I mean, we're talking about one of the most picturesque venues imaginable. Yeah. Just, just throw a picture of the venue on there. Exactly, exactly. Or give us like a green color scheme, at least something that denotes nature and you know the pastoral quality of alpine instead of this like weird purple you said dollar store 2001 it looks like you know something that like prince would have considered for an album cover because of the purple (laughs) and then and then just like immediately discarded the other thing with this album is that we both really like the music on this record but like the sound quality yeah is appreciably worse and that i think really is something that stymies a lot of these uh 80s dicks picks that we've had mm. and it is interesting because like this one it, it sounds worse than these beautifully recorded shows that we've heard from the 70s like these last several volumes this is though relatively better than like the other 80s dicks picks i think like this is probably the best sounding of the 80s dicks picks even though it's like mm-hmm. worse sounding than i think dicks picks overall yeah yeah i think i wish i knew more about the technology of how you know, people take the soundboard masters from shows 
and clean them up and put them up on archive or distribute them or whatever. Like what what does Charlie Miller do that makes a Charlie Miller remaster sound yes. so good? And are the are the things that he does today, were those even available, you know, in two thousand four when this came out? And just just to like explain what we're alluding to here, I think it's worth reading. There, there's always a caveat emptor on all these dicks picks. Usually they're pretty much the same thing. I think it's worth reading this one because it's actually a pretty interesting one. And it's from, uh, I believe, Jeffrey Norman, who did the CD mastering on this one. So it's not from Dave. It's from Jeffrey Norman. But it says, by now, after 11 years and 31 previous volumes of dicks picks, most of you ignore these dire audio warnings. Therefore, every once in a while, I need to remind you of the inherent problems of some of our music sources. The master for Alpine 8782 is a cassette. Yes, the lowly forgotten cassette. It is quite well preserved, but it is a sonically limited cassette nonetheless. In addition to that, because of overriding considerations at the time of this show. Weird. Uh, This mix is bass instrument shy. That being said, this is a great show, and that's the foremost Dixpix consideration, right? So let the music and performance jump out and grab you and enjoy. So... What he's alluding to here is that, you know, while in the 70s, you had Betty or Kid Candelario running a basically a reel-to-reel, right, off the soundboard to create a, a mix for the band to listen to later or the sound crew to listen to later and correct things. By the 80s, Dan Healy, the Dead's longtime sound man, was basically just running, like it sounds like a cassette tech, off the soundboard. Uh, and obviously his main focus was the in-house sound, right? So he's balancing for what Alpine Valley sounds like, not for the home listening experience later on. And so I think that's what he's alluding to with this, like, overriding considerations at the time of the show. Like, Phil is almost absent in this recording, which is a real bummer, especially after hearing, you know, a couple Betty boards earlier this season, where Phil is just, like, lusciously present. But yeah, it just, like, the, the cassette masters, I think, definitely squish the sound. You don't get that the range of even the 70s recordings. Uh, but I do think they've they figured something out to make them sound a little bit better over time, and not just within the Dixpix series, because I was listening, as I said, to shows from Summer 82 around this show, which were also from, you could see the lineage on Archive, they were from Dan Healy's soundboard cassette master. But Charlie Miller or whoever else had made them sound just as good as like a 70s soundboard recording. So I, I, you know, again, I'm ignorant of how this magic is performed, but it seems like the technology to bring the most out of these recordings has gotten better over time. Yeah. And again, I think, like you said, they did something with this where it sounds better than, for instance, what we heard in the first season. And I think you can really tell. And again, I don't know if this is... The recording or how he was mixed on stage or whatever but like i i remember some of those early brent era dicks picks his uh keyboard sounds being really plunky and yeah awful. yeah and i mean here he's mainly playing piano there's a little bit of organ but his piano sounds great and it really is prominent in the mix and again that's a big part of what i like about this dicks picks volume it's just how well you can hear brent and how good he sounds it's it's definitely still an electric piano, but it's not so conspicuously electric yeah, <laughs> as it, it is on uh, some of the other ones. So let's dig into uh, the summer tour The Dead did in 1982. According to Relisten, there are 63 recordings from 82. So I don't know if that means there were 63 shows. I don't know if anything was missed. I'm, I'm guessing that that is more or less accurate for the number of shows that they would have played mm-hmm. in 1982. And I don't know... 
exactly like how much of a, of a reputation this year has. Like there, if you go online, there's like there's some discussion of eighty two. It it does seem like a year that overall isn't terribly well represented or or discussed i think there's like a a relatively small handful of shows from this year yeah the official releases are super light i mean there's this one there is one in the 36 trips box which almost doesn't count because they had to do a show from every year though the show that they picked is one of the ones i listened to and i think you listened to too uh july 31st in austin yes and it was a pretty hot show actually it It was like a lot of fun to listen to there's an insane uh, eyes of the world i mean eyes of the world (laughs) just got more and more berserk yeah that one i keep thinking i've reached the limit of how berserk that song got and then i find one that is even nuttier And I remember, I think we talked about this in a previous episode, like there's a show from 86. Yeah. I think that might be the This is the Brent Freakout show. The Brent Freakout show, and they play Eyes of the World, and it is like, they were like freebasing cocaine on stage. (laughs) They must have been, because it's just, it's deliriously fast. Yeah, like wait, it, you know, like I, like I'm a person like Eyes of the World's my favorite Grateful Dead song. I tend to be very particular about the tempo, like seventy three, seventy four. That like that era of them playing that song, it's the perfect tempo. I even complain about seventy seven Eyes as being a little too fast. But then you go to the eighties, and it's like okay, you know, seventy seven Eyes sounds like molasses right. on black tar. I mean, <laughs> compared to just the berserker versions of Eyes that you hear in the eighties. Yeah, uh, but yeah, that Austin show is good. It's like years ago, I, I went through uh, a period where I was listening to like a lot of shows from spring of '82. Uh, like, there's some shows that they did at uh, like Nassau Coliseum. Like, they did a stand there. There's like a stand at the Hartford Civic Center. This is both in April. Those are good shows too. Um, right. So yeah, '82. As you were saying before, you, you know, there's, there are periods in the '80s that I think are just ripe for discovery. Even in Dead World, where everything is obsessed over, there was a Blair Jackson uh, like that I saw where he's yeah, talking. he did a blog post where he did like a run. He listened to ten shows from '82. I think uh, it was a summer tour. I think it was like right before these like this Alpine show. Yeah, it was the 10 shows leading up to this and like talked about how great it was. And the Save Your Face blog, who we love sending people to, he actually made five compilations from Summer 82. So that is like a ringing endorsement to me. That guy knows his hidden corners of Grateful Dead uh, music. Yeah, like if you're looking to get into 80s or 90s dead, Save Your Face blog is great because mm-hmm. he really pays attention to that era and he does really great compilations. He'll he'll do a great compilation of like Summer of 94, you know, which right. you wouldn't think to listen to, but he finds the gems there, which is a, a really valuable service. I mean, this is an interesting period for the dead because, you know, they, they put out Go to Heaven. I guess right. that would have been 80. Mm-hmm. And that's their last studio album until In the Dark. Right. Yeah, Dead Set and Reckoning comes out in 81. Yeah. So they did have a sort of recent release. But I feel like it's kind of like the start. 82 feels like the start of the wilderness years where they were just like road dogs. Like they didn't seem that interested in recording. There are some new songs here and there. I was actually, there's like no new songs in this set. But 
uh, in fall of 82 is when they debuted Touch of Grey and Throwing Stones and West LA Fade Away and our favorite day job. But Summer 82, you but look three at the of those songs list. are great. I mean, I, I love yeah. three out of four of those songs are really strong. It's interesting, too, because the, like Jerry, he had his last studio solo record came out in the fall of 82. I don't know if you've ever mm-hmm. listened to that record, Run for, Run the, for Roses, the Roses, yeah. which is... His last studio record definitely his weakest. I just think of the cover of I Saw Her Standing There on that record. <laughs> right. Not great. Not great, Bob. Not great. Uh, that's a Mad Men reference. I'm not referring to Bob Weir. Um, <laughs> or Bob Mitchum. Uh, although there's a, uh, there's a Garcia Hunter composition on that record called Valerie, which <laughs> I like. My wife's name Should have played Valerie. it in the women's set. <laughs> he could have done it there. It's a deep cut. Also, uh, the first Bobby and the Midnight's record. Came right. out in late 81. Okay, so that doesn't surprise me given the vibe of this show uh, to some extent. Bobby is definitely uh, hamming it up in 1982. So, But yeah, I mean, it just feels like... I mean, there was I found a quote from Phil from 1980 where he, talked, he, he said that the dead were in a holding pattern. We're still at the same altitude, but we're circling. That's kind of the impression I tend to get from the 80s. And again, I'm, I'm going to talk a lot about how I this show proved me wrong but you know you flip through the set list the set lists are very predictable i think to some extent this show throws some curveballs in there which is nice but it just you know there's this period of the 80s where it seems like they were just kind of like treading water a little bit yeah i think that's why people like the post coma years i think that's part of the reason is that i think the set lists are a lot more dynamic Mm -hmm. in that period i i mean that actually is one thing i like about the 80s and 90s because I would say like in the 70s even, as great as those shows are, like because we, we, we just listened to like a bunch of shows from like 77, 73, 74. Um, I mean, they're playing like a lot of the same songs in those years too. I mean, right. the, the nice yeah. thing about the 80s and 90s is that they have like a bigger catalog of work to draw from. And they're also doing covers more often, like a wider range of covers, some kind of wacky covers, which I, <laughs> I tend to like. I know people have mixed feelings about that. I, I like it when the dead do something totally out of left field, like they do Baba O'Reilly, even if they don't mm-hmm. pull it off. I, I I think it's interesting just to hear them do like a weird classic rock cover that you wouldn't associate with the Grateful Dead. Mm-hmm. And of course, like once Brent too becomes more of an entertainer on stage, they're doing some of those wedding band type songs right, too, right. Like toward the end of the set, uh, which, I mean, I remember that 85 show you know they had the run like with give me some lovin' and right the wedding band uh set yeah yeah which and some of those covers just seem so weird the way that they're performed that i ended up liking them for that reason (laughs) yeah just just Uh, the strangest of it speaking of weird covers uh you know we talked about we we each i think explored some shows around it so this was a two-night run at alpine valley in 1982 we have the august 7th show on dick's picks and then there's the august 8th show which is also very well regarded culminates in a wild version of satisfaction i don't know if you got to hear that yeah. <laughs> with not only is it satisfaction but uh bob starts singing wang dang doodle in the middle of satisfaction <laughs> for uh extra uh bobbiness uh, at the end of that night so 
So I just want to point out that eight eight is quite a good show too. Yeah, you alluded to maybe a survey. I mean, it would have been the way to go here, but eight eight has some real gems. I think you also listened to eight six. What was going yeah, on in eight six? Yeah, yeah. There's a Saint Paul show that they did yeah, on August sixth that has some really good stuff in it. There's a bird song from that that is really cool. Like I said, there's like a solo Brent song. I think there's also a solo Brent song on August eighth. I think they does uh, far from me. Yeah. yeah. And I'll get into this more when we start talking about the show, but there are parts of the second set from August 8th that I like a lot, and I think you could make a case might have been good on this record. As much as I like everything on this record, after listening to 8-8, there were elements of 8-7 that I liked a little bit less because I liked the 8-8 part so much. Yeah. And I'm being very vague here because I don't want to be too spoilery here with our episode. <laughs> so maybe we should just move on from that here and talk right. – a little bit about the venue, which we've done already. Yeah. We're talking about Alpine Valley. We were talking about our personal memories of the venue, but just to give a little historical background on Alpine Valley, one of the great, again, jam band venues of all time. Built in 77, part of the Alpine Valley Ski Resort. And as Rob said earlier, it fits about 40,000 people. I guess it's a little bit variable because most of it is lawn. I guess the pavilion has about 7,500 right. people. And, you know, Rob and I are middle-aged men now so we only will go in the <laughs> pavilion when we go it's true to Alpine. i know i feel i feel kind of guilty about it but like <laughs> i don't feel guilty at all i yeah yeah <laughs> I, like, I mean not that you're actually sitting down during the show my big thing about having a seat is that if i go to the bathroom i just want my spot right i don't yeah. have i don't want to have to worry that someone's in my spot after i left it's nice it's nice for that it reason. should be pointed out if, if if any listeners out there haven't been to alpine valley you, if, if you're imagining a regular music venue's lawn, you're way off. Because as Steve said at the top, this is a ski hill, basically, that they built an amphitheater into. It is at like a 40 degree angle. And if you are standing, even if you're not even dancing or, you know, getting too exuberant, if you just stand there for four hours for a jam band show at that angle, and you're an old man like us, your, your back and your knees are going to feel it for weeks afterwards. So it's a, it's almost a health hazard to get a lawn ticket at Alpine Valley. And if you're going to do a stand there too, I mean, that's the other thing, like, you know, because you might... Yeah, multiple might going, nights. If you're going to multiple nights, it, yeah, it, it's like a death sentence for your knees. So right. yeah, I'm I'm too old for that, man. I, I want yeah. my, I, you know, I want to sit during the set break. Yeah, exactly. And I want to just have my place to stand by. You know, if I go get a beer or I go to the bathroom, I don't have to like fight through a crowd to get back to my spot. So right. that's how I am. I'm persnickety with that. And like I said before, this was a venue that, I mean, really like their peak, I think, was in the 80s and 90s. Right. Uh, where you had the dead playing there, if not annually, like pretty often. They played uh, every year of the 80s except 83, at least one show at Alpine Valley. I think after 89, I, it's hard to tell if they got too big or if they were kind of not invited back. Because Alpine Valley, it, while it has a very good reputation among deadheads because of the sort of bucolic setting, uh, I think they used to allow camping in the parking lot. Or at least, like, you know, not busted up. Because it has such a huge grass parking lot, it's really easy to just, like, you know, park your car, throw up a tent, and stay there for three nights or whatever. But it also has a very aggressive cop situation. Even to this day, with fish shows there, they really bust vending pretty hard. I remember even going to my first fish show in 96, we were worried about, the, you know, the small Wisconsin towns leading up to East Troy. 
putting up roadblocks and checking people for oh, yeah. and sobriety It's like and pretty all that. rednecky there. It's interesting because yeah. it's like in it's kind of in between Madison and Milwaukee, which are the two big cities in Wisconsin, but like it is out in the country. So right. it, it is rednecky in yeah. that part of the state. I remember a lot of people sitting on their lawn chairs just watching the cars drive through <laughs> their town. Like it was like they were watching a parade or yeah, hippies from the city. Yeah. They're probably out there watching the mosquitoes fly by when there's <laughs> when <laughs> exactly. there's not a jam band show. Another thing that Alpine Valley is known for, this is a tragic circumstance, this is where Stevie Ray Vaughan died. Yeah. Where his helicopter crash took place after performing a big show. I think it was Clapton, Robert Cray. And Double Trouble. Yeah, Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble. I mean, Wisconsin is not a particularly mountainous place, you know, but this part of the state, like the western side, does have a lot more hills, more bucolic. I grew up on like the flat side of Wisconsin. But yeah, I guess it was foggy because it was it was late August. I think it was August twenty seventh, nineteen nineties, when he died. So it would have been nice weather otherwise. But I don't know what it was. If, yeah, if it was foggy or the unclear conditions that night. But that's but he died at Alpine, which is very sad. Yeah, it's crazy that that happened. Like I think they wanted to fly back to Chicago after the show to stay because, as we said, there's not much not much around there. Uh, yeah. for a for a big rock star to. To, to stay in a fancy hotel. Yeah, I mean, because, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, they are mountains by Midwestern standards. Yeah. But you would think that a helicopter would not have any trouble getting over the hills of Alpine Valley. Uh, yeah, really, it's, it's a real bummer that that happened there. And yeah, I mean, I, it's kind of, as we were saying, a little bit of a venue in decline just because there's not enough bands that can fill that size venue these days. So Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. I mean, they really hit rock bottom about five years ago. There was a year, uh, 2017, where they didn't book any concerts. I think that was like the yeah. first year they couldn't find anyone to play there. And it does seem like it's also part of the culture of that place because they're, I mean, you know, you could book Harry Styles there, for instance, and he could sure. fill that place, but he's not, you know, they don't really book pop shows there. It's either jam band stuff, a little bit of country you know, like Zach or metal in metal, yeah. But like Zach Brown band plays like they're one of the sure, you know, yeah, consistent acts that plays there. And I think like uh, you know, like Kenny Chesney has played there. People like that. But yeah, they've always been sort of like a, a place for like bands for the most part, right? So I, I wonder if they will eventually branch out. Like would like would they book a Taylor Swift concert there? Like a Taylor yeah. Swift played because t- she could fill that place. But it's a, it'd be a cultural shift for Alabama. well, I looked up. The roster for this summer, and of course, Fish is playing there, Buffett's playing there, Buffett plays every year. Uh, Slipknot was doing a festival there, the Rage Against the Machine tour was playing there, but then also a DJ named Grizz, <laughs> with uh, peculiar capitalization, <laughs> um, who I had never heard of before, but is apparently doing like a two-day festival up there. That's the thing, is like, I feel like it would be a great place for like, one of these, you know, EDM festivals. Maybe a little bit risky, given the yeah. cop situation up there. Well, there, but like, and also, yeah. like, if people are on, if they take an E on that hill, I would worry a little bit about that. <laughs> it just seems like a death trap. Well, many, many a hippie has rolled down that hill, I think, and uh, yeah, yeah, I, I suppose they have come out fairly unscathed. So, um, last thing I want to say about Alpine Valley, just to give anybody a tip who might be headed there this summer, is traffic is awful, famously awful, getting out of Alpine Valley. And the uh, secret insider Alpine Valley tip is uh, when the encore starts, you run up the hill and get to the back and watch the encore from the top of the hill. Then you make it to your car and you get out faster. So I just want to put that out there as a public service to anybody going to Alpine this summer. (laughs) 
we get to our show, and we should move through our set up the scene segment because we're already like almost at an hour here. Too too much Midwestern reminiscing. I know we're rambling too much. People are like getting (laughs) impatient for us to actually talk about the goddamn show here. Uh, But let's set up the scene. What else was going on in pop culture? In 1982, in early August, the number one song in America, Eye of the Tiger, yeah. by Survivor from the Rocky Three soundtrack. It's interesting looking at some of the other big songs. You have a lot of bands from the 60s and 70s that have made the transition into 80s soft rock. Exactly. You have like uh, Abracadabra by the Steve Miller Band. You have Hold Me by Fleetwood Mac, which is not all that different from their usual sound. Chicago's Hard to Say I'm Sorry. And then uh, you have CSNs, Wasted on the Way. Yeah, Crosby, Stills, and Nash is the most interesting comparison to the dead in this era, I think. Definitely, you know, coming from the same place, but found a way much earlier than the dead. I guess, you know, five or six years earlier than the dead to kind of tap into the 80s zeitgeist. Whereas the dead in 82, I feel like, are very much out of the mainstream, right? They're yeah. Not, they're no longer on the radio or even really being thought of, except they're more of a cult band at this point. CSN has kind of uh, snuck their way back in with Daylight Again, right? That's the album. Yeah, and that was also a big album at this time. It's kind of amazing, too, because they were a mess. I mean, David Crosby was basically on his deathbed at this time. And I think this was around the time that he he ended up going to prison. Mm -hmm. So they were in terrible shape. But, you know, you had Graham Nash holding it together. And yeah. uh, and Stills, I think, was actually in relatively good good shape. So yeah, that record has like Southern Cross on it. Yeah, other big hits. So they could somehow just kind of limp along and and still do pretty well at that time. Yeah, I read that they actually recorded that with like Art Garfunkel and uh, Timothy B. Schmidt doing the David Crosby parts. Right, and then had to tack on Crosby later because the record company only wanted they didn't want a Stills and Nash album. Yeah, it had to be CSN. So purely for branding purposes, I mean, exactly. That was such a yeah, good, a good uh, a good brand there. Uh, number one album in America, Mirage by Fleetwood Mac. Pretty good record. I mean, that was them trying to retrench after Tusk did like well by most standards, but like not that well by Fleetwood Mac standards. Right. Their adventurous double record. So you know, more of like a straightforward pop record. I, I remember I interviewed Lindsey Buckingham recently, and I asked about that album, and he didn't seem overly thrilled with it. Because he felt like it was kind of a, he didn't use these words, but I think he he looked at it as kind of like a sellout move Uh, that, you know, we got to just put out hits again. But, you know, Gypsy's on that record. Again, Holby's on that record. That just made me think that Fleetwood Mac play Alpine Valley in 1982, and they did, September 22nd, so a month after the dead. And man, this this set list is just wall-to-wall bangers. We got to do Fleetwood Mac curveball. Oh, man. (laughs) I'm all over that. Some live Fleetwood Mac is a uh, is an experience. I think they're good. I mean, yeah. Lindsey Buckingham is a totally underrated guitar player. I mean, just yeah. hearing him rip, right? And you get uh, the the Mick Fleetwood drum solo. <laughs> oh yeah, possibly including the uh, vest that he drums on <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when he drums on his own body. Uh, anyway, not to not to divert into me- into the Mac. Uh, number one movie in America, probably to the surprise of no one, if you know anything about 1982, is E.T. Yeah. For a long time, the highest grossing film of all time. I always feel like with movies, they should count tickets sold and not dollars because that's, you know, you do that with albums, you do that with books. Yeah. You don't You don't count the, the amount of money it made, you count the units that it sold because any movie now just has such a huge advantage over a movie released 40 years ago. Like, what was a ticket in 1982? Probably three or four bucks right. to go see a movie. Um, I, I saw a stat once that said that if you just counted tickets sold, like Gone with the Wind, uh, by far be the like the most successful movie ever made. 
That makes sense. Yeah, because they would they kept putting it out every ten years. Yeah, too, so. and, and, yeah. and people just went to movies more. I mean, I think that was the peak of movie attendance was in the thirties and forties. Yeah, before yeah. TV came along. Number one TV show. Let's count these down. This is actually different than what we because we have so many <laughs> seventy shows. Right. Always all in the family. No all in the family at all here. Number five, Alice. Yeah. Number four, Three's Company. <laughs> number three, The Jeffersons. Yeah. Number two, 60 Minutes. And number one, Dallas. I think yeah. four out of five of those shows were on CBS. Wow. Three's Company, I believe, was ABC, but the other four were on CBS. It's pretty incredible. Pretty incredible run for CBS. You know, we've like, you know, decades don't always line up culturally with the calendar, but I think it's pretty clear that we are definitely in the 80s <laughs> by 1982. Well, it's funny because I feel like a lot of these are 70s holdovers, you know. Really? I, you think so? Oh, yeah. Well, I know Three's Company and Alice. Yeah, these all started in the 70s. I guess it's Dallas. Did Dallas start in the 70s? Yeah, that started like late 70s. Dallas, I think of as like, you know, big hair and. No, no, because I've actually seen a fair amount of Dallas. My wife and I went through a phase where we watched Dallas. Okay. And that show, I mean, I I really think of that as like late 70s America because it is very, well, it's sort of like pointing toward the 80s because it's like the yuppies are coming into play and like, you know, being really focused on money and being rich. I mean, when I think about the 80s, I think of like Cosby Show, Family Ties. All right. So more late 80s. You know, Full House shows like that, like which... Are more like mid to late eighties. Yeah. I would these feel like kind of like seventies holdovers a little bit to me. But at any rate, we could talk about Dallas all day long. <laughs> but maybe we should finally get to our show. Let's play some music and get to it. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the One Hit Thunder or nothing more than a one hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York. A podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts.
here finally at Dick's Picks 32, August 7th, 1982 at Alpine Valley Music Theater in East Troy, Wisconsin. We'll walk through most, I guess, of both discs since we only have two discs here. I think we're going to skip over some stuff that is less interesting to talk about, but we have to definitely talk about how disc one opens because you have a very unusual, you know, sort of setup here where you have music never stops. Then they go into Sugary, and they go back into Music Never Stops. And I have a feeling that this is one of the reasons why this show was picked over some of the other shows that were around this that were very good, because this was a very unique thing for the dead. I think they only did this one other time. Yeah, I only found one other, 1994. Yeah. They did it again. Though these two songs were paired very often, like Music Never Stops, Sugary was a pretty common opening combination. Maybe they're in the same key or something that makes them natural pairs because they did that a couple dozen times. But yeah, this is wild for the dead. I mean, you like we were talking about the sameness of 82 when you're kind of like going through the set lists. Like they all sort of look very similar uh, when you're when you're flipping through. But this, as you said, might be the reason. One re- big reason why this show was picked because it really pops out that they did, I must say, a very fish style uh, sandwich segue here. Oh man! By we, dropping we, sugary into the we middle. just lost half our audience <laughs> with that comparison. They're well, the gone. dead inspired fish. I'm not saying that you know. Of course, it's not not like fish invented this out of thin air. But you know, very unusual for the dead to try and pull off this kind of like complicated segue. I think it's not the smoothest thing ever. I think it might have been planned. You can kind of hear not on the dicks picks, but if you go to archive, there's a little bit of like dialogue before the song starts and you can kind of hear them discussing the set list and it's it's faint but i think you can hear them planning to do this but it also kind of sounds like jerry just starts playing sugary in the middle of like the breakdown (laughs) for music never stopped and the whole band is like oh okay i guess we're playing sugary now like it's abrupt i would say and it's interesting to compare there's a couple of moments here that because we're listening to Dick's Picks in Order, it, it it prompts a very logical comparison of this sugary to some of the recent sugaries that we've heard. You know, obviously we were gushing about the 1977 sugaries, which really seems like the peak of that song. And then we were comparing it a little unfavorably to the one that we heard on Dick's Picks 31, which was uh, from 74. Still a really good sugary, I think, for the most part, but like not as strong. Actually, you know, in a way, is this sugary better than the 74 sugary? I I feel like the 74 sugary maybe wasn't fully realized. Obviously, 77 is better. Right. Because at first, I I wasn't loving the sugary, and then the more I listened to it, it really hit home for me. I think especially as it progresses. Because as you said, it's a little awkward when they go into it at first. But Mm -hmm. I think the problem with the 74 sugary is that Jerry wasn't hitting the guitar solo with the same zest that you would hope he would. But he really, I think, settles in as the song progresses and he plays some really cool solos here. It's also because it's like Sandwich by Music Never Stopped, which is a much more up-tempo song. Sugary kind of like pulls in some of that energy from the music never stopped i feel like it's played very up-tempo for sugary especially compared to those 77 versions which just feel like they're gonna last forever (laughs) in a good way so it's like a microcosm of this whole show for me is like the first time i heard it i'm like oh my god they're playing sugary way too fast what is going on here like everything sounds wrong because we've been so immersed in the 70s but every time i went back to it i was like it's kind of cool to hear sugary with like a little bit of an edge to it right i mean the the jerry solos they're not these luxurious 
serious long solos that you hear in a 77 sugary they're they've got like some attack to it and that's something that just comes back again and again in this show that jerry while vocally maybe he sounds a little weary his guitar is just like kind of on fire this entire night yeah, uh, in a in a really exciting way. You just mentioned Jerry's vocal. That would that was one thing I noticed listening to this is that his voice sounds a little ragged on this album, and yeah. I don't know if that's drug related or if that's just because they were nearing the end of the tour and maybe his voice was getting a little tired. I mean, obviously right. it's a little bit of both because we aren't talking about his voice being tired. For instance, on Dick's Picks One, which was like the last show of '73, his voice still sounds great. He was just in a much different place in his life in 73 versus 82 where the effects of touring so much were going to wear on him a little more because he's older and also like the years were starting to accumulate at this point you know the the years of abuse and of course you know we're four years removed from him hitting rock bottom or i guess his first rock bottom with his health so i think you you're starting to hear you know the the signs of of, of jerry maybe being in ill health a little bit i think as as well as he plays guitar on this record yeah, and they try and cover it up a little bit. Like another jarring thing is that they put just like a ton of vocal effects on Jerry. Though it, it goes in and out. The the dead sound <laughs> was very strange in this time. And I think throughout the 80s and 90s. But like there's some songs where it starts out and it sounds like Jerry's in like a cavernous like reverb studio. And then it'll like switch off by the second verse. So I'm not quite sure what Dan Healy was trying to do. Maybe he was kind of, it's the first night at Alpine. So maybe they're still kind of getting things worked out. But I'd also think it is a little bit of like Jerry's voice is struggling. So let's throw some effects on it to cover that up a little bit. But I mean, it, it doesn't really bother me. There's, uh, it's a show where we've talked the last, I feel like we've had a lot of volumes lately where the slow songs have been really strong. And that's just not the case here. I think the slow songs are kind of the weakest part of this set, but the, the fast songs are, are really ripping. Uh, so this kind of sets the tone. This is a nice overture for the whole show, I feel like. That yeah. Things are, uh, are going to be high energy and less predictable than it might look on the surface. Well, and also, I, I think the prominence of Bob, too, here also speaks maybe to Jerry, his voice being a little weak. Like, how much Bob sings lead. And mm-hmm. on the first set, that translates to the music really having, like, a country-ish feel. Like, they're really leaning into that side where the opening, you know, music never stopped, sugary music never stopped. Now we're going to go into two cowboy songs in a row, Me and My Uncle and Big River. They translate well because these are the this is the high energy part of the countryish nature of this set. Although again, like I am tired of Me and My Uncle at this point. That is like <laughs> the most played Grateful Dead song ever. Right. But I am always a fan of of Big River. So I'm always happy to hear that. This is the part of the set where things are still strong, but it's things are going to get a little sleepier. I feel like after right. this. Right. Yeah. I want to shout out this Big River. I know you're a big Big River fan. And I've talked a lot about it a lot. I'm always kind of like, yeah, okay. I don't pay a lot of attention to it. The final Jerry solo in this Big River is kind of like, like really made me sit up and take notice in a way that a lot of Big Rivers just kind of like pass over me. It is another, like there's there's like a handful of moments in this show where Jerry is just giving something a little bit extra. Like you can hear it maybe go a couple extra bars or something like that. Like he's really feeling it. But that, that it's one to pay attention to here because he's he's just, he's ripping. So yep. like that's what, that's what makes me think it's not a drug thing because you would think like the, with his voice, right? Because you would think if it was a drug thing, it would affect both. But he is very present in his guitar. He's just a little uh, froggy on, on the mic. 
And I mean, you know, like I said, they played in St. Paul the night before the show, and then they played the show after this. I mean, they were not taking a lot of breaks on no. this tour. You would normally think, like, okay, before a two-show run, take a night off. I don't think people thought in those terms necessarily back then. Or, you know, they were younger. I mean, if they were, the, if it was the older dead, I think they for sure would have done something like that. Or mm-hmm. you would take a couple days off before a run at a venue. I'm with you on that last guitar solo on Big River. I mean, I, that is my... That's why I like that song a lot, because it is just a vehicle for Jerry to play that, like, ripping country guitar really fast, you know? Yeah. Like, I, I just wait for whatever his guitar solo is going to be. So that, that to me, is always the best part of Big River, and it's, it's great to hear that he could still deliver like that in this era. Because, again, I think of that song in the 70s as a first set highlight, but it could be a first set highlight, too, in the 80s. And it is... A much-needed jolt of adrenaline before you get into the mid-tempo part right. of this set, where you get the several... real like saggy part of the show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> where and again, we've talked about this many times about the dead not necessarily being great at knowing how to pace a set. Yeah, where you will get a lot of songs that are kind of the same in a row. You know, we're getting must have been the roses, CC Rider, Ramble on Rose, all kind of at the same tempo, kind of slow. And then bring it down the line, coming after that, that's more upbeat. But again, that's a song I don't get terribly excited about. I will say that one thing I did like from this run, which I think we both agree is kind of like the most boring part of this album, is I did like hearing Brent play organ on CC Rider. He has a mm-hmm. really cool organ solo. Again, this is a show where he's primarily just playing piano. But his organ playing, that's one of the things that's really associated with Brent. And I always think of that story about how, like, after Brent died and Vince came into the band, I think, like, the crew took the B3, mm-hmm. like, out of the setup. And I don't know if, like, that was Jerry's orders or if the crew just didn't like keyboards or what. Uh, they just, they always seem to re- overreact when a keyboardist dies uh, or it gets kicked out of the band, I guess, in Geese's case. They always seem to overreact to what the last keyboardist, keyboardist was known for, right? Like, they just try and go, like, a total 180 different direction with the next keyboardist. So, it, it's like, you know, Keith was all piano, and so they brought in a guy who never gets to play an actual piano. <laughs> like, prefers to play pretty treated electric piano or synthesizer or and a lot of B3, and then he dies. So, they bring in a guy who doesn't play any B3. I think Vince wanted to play B3 was the story, but they wouldn't let him they wanted him to play yeah he was he was a piano player who didn't really ever play since and then right they, and then they had him play since and then they brought bruce in to play piano right right and then they've brought back and now they've come full circle and like i think brent was playing pig pens b3 and now that same b3 Comenti plays it in dead and company yeah i mean so. I, I i i mean that's one of the one of the many things i love about brent i love his organ playing so just yeah. to get a little taste of that even in cc rider which again can be kind of a tired song to hear i mean this is the era where that's really becoming a cliche of the first set bobby doing like an eight or nine minute blues song uh, bobby blues i i will say that i did not laugh out loud at bobby's slide solo in the oh, cc wow. rider which immediately elevates it to like one of the best ones i've ever heard <laughs> i was like I, I wouldn't say it was good but it wasn't hilariously bad at any point so i will give it that as a backhanded compliment the thing with brent and his organ yeah there's not a lot of big organ solos we don't get a deal right it would be great to get a de- an 80s brent deal 
like just once in in dick's picks i don't know if we have ever gotten that where you get that great jerry brent's back and forth right solo competition whenever he is playing organ in this show though i really really liked it because i think he's kind of a he's a he's a very unique i feel like he almost plays organ like keith plays piano uh where it it's not flashy it's definitely very present and very loud and a song like like playing in the band for instance or in morning dew which we'll get to later like the organ is very present but he's very good at it being sort of like a texture on top of a very busy you know band doing other things and and just offering like these little bit uh these little comps like little you know the the classic sort of b3 like organ blast every so often that just kind of like like peppers it in every here and there and like drives Jerry into another gear. People talk a lot about Jerry and Brent's chemistry during the 80s. And I think that's like a one of the things that really jumped out on this set for me and listening to other Summer 82 shows is how good Brent is at using that organ in sort of like a supporting role. Yeah. So even when he's not taking a solo, I was trying to think of another organist that it reminds me of. I feel like maybe Steve Winwood is kind of similar. And I think Brent liked Steve Winwood a lot, clearly, because they would do... Give me some loving and dear Mr. Fantasy. Yeah. But just in like using the organ as almost like a almost like a rhythm guitarist way, though it's not quite the same. Like, but just kind of like a role player. Your six man on a basketball team sort of thing that comes in and, and ignites everybody else to to higher higher levels. It, well, he definitely got flashier later too. And yeah. Again, yeah. this this speaks to the divide of late eighties versus early eighties. And I feel like there's differing opinions on whether people like the prominent keyboards or not i love keyboards and I, I i like what brent brought to the band i think i i'm glad that maybe other keyboardists weren't as prominent as him although again we i always complain about keith not being loud enough in the mix i always like want to hear more because I, I love just what he brought as a piano player and, and sometimes it's hard to hear on, on on some of these uh dicks picks that we've talked about but i don't know i i love the color that he brought to the band and it's, it's such a distinguishing aspect of that era of the dead. But yeah, I mean, I think he had the ability to also lay back in the way that you were saying to take more of a supporting role. But yeah, again, I, I also like it when he gets flashy. Yeah. I, I, I like obtrusive Brett, you know, too. So we should talk about the Dick's Picks debut that's on this disc. Right. Which is on the road again. Yeah, which I always think is going to be the Willie Nelson song, <laughs> right? And then it's not. <laughs> no, this, no. This was like, is this like a jug band song? Yeah, uh, the Memphis Jug Band recorded it originally in 1928. Memphis Jug Band also did Stealin', which was another early Grateful Dead cover. The Dead played this song before they were the Dead. They played it in the Mother McCree's Uptown Jug Champions. On the road again is like pre-Primal Dead that they revived. For the acoustic sets in 1980. You said it's on Reckoning? Yeah, it's on Reckoning, which is the version that I always think of when I hear this song or, or, or I see the song being referenced. And I really like the version on Reckoning. Mm-hmm. That is like a lot tighter than what we hear on Dick's Picks 32. It's also, like you said, it's, it's, it's an acoustic version. I think it works better as an acoustic song than, yeah. than it does here. I feel like this is kind of like a sloppy version like in yeah. not a great way. And it does, I think, start lapsing into more of like a bar band type yeah. arrangement and you know, you were mentioning Bob hamming it up, you know, like, come on, pretty mama, you know, that whole thing. Like, that really gets pronounced here in a way that yeah. is, like, a little eye-rolly. Yeah, I mean, it's like, they're kind of singing in, like, uh, dialect a little bit, which is not a great look. I mean, the riff goes all the way back to the original 1928 version, so this is a little unfair of me, but this just, like, 
if I if I take myself a step away from being a Grateful Dead fan and listening to this song in particular is like what I think people who aren't Grateful Dead fans think the Grateful Dead sound like all the time. Like it's got that kind of like 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 sort of twisty riff, which is just very jam band cliche. It's got the sort of like, you know, blues like cliche stuff that you're talking about. I don't know, this is my my least favorite part of this entire disc, <laughs> which or and the entire volume really. I, you would have thought it was going to be something that's looming on disc 2, but on the road again to me is much more uh offensive <laughs> than the man smart woman smarter which is coming up. Like it's just like exemplifies the uh, occasional laziness of the Grateful Dead in the 80s, I'll say. Yeah, you know, again, I like the reckoning version a lot. I think that is probably closer in spirit to where this song comes from, too. Mm-hmm. The the jug band roots. It, it just feels more like a folk type song. And I think it works on reckoning. Not so much here. Yeah, especially coming after C.C. Ryder, like three songs after C.C. Ryder. Bob keeps like, this is a really long first set, right? It's 12 songs, which yeah. seems really long. And it's it's partly long because Bob keeps like sneaking in these like double song packages. Yeah. <laughs> and so and this so is... I think the, yeah, the Beat It On Down The Line into On The Road Again was a move that they did a few times. And it's just like, Bob, like, I don't think we needed all of this. And that's why like when I hear the bird song from... 8682 in St. Paul. I'm like, yeah, maybe we could have subbed that in yeah. for some of the stuff that's on the first disc. I I will say, I think the second disc is good as hell on this album. I love the second disc. The first disc is a little patchy because of the song selection. I just I just feel like, again, you have a lot of mid-tempo songs. This is a new song. You know, this isn't as well-worn as some of these songs are, but again, it's like not a great rendition of it, and mm-hmm. I just think it should should have stayed in the acoustic guise of Reckoning. After this, we get a, one of my favorite Grateful Dead songs that we have not heard very often on Dick's Picks, yeah. which is Althea. Only other one other time. Yeah, Dick's Pick 6 was the only other one from 1983. And again, you know, because we haven't had much Brent era, we're mm-hmm. losing songs like Althea, one of the great, I think, Grateful Dead songs of this era. I have to say, as you know, I enjoyed this because I, I like hearing Althea, but this isn't like a great Althea. It's like a it's a serviceable Althea. Yeah. It's not a special Althea. It's nice to hear. Would be amazing to hear in Alpine Valley. And it, you know, it 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 snaps the band out of this lull in the middle of the first set. I will say, like this first disc starts strong, sags a little bit, and then finishes strong without the uh, leading into the closer of Let It Grow, which I know you were a big fan of. Yeah, you know, we've talked about Weather Report Suite a lot here, and I I think your opinion on the song has evolved a little bit, like on Weather Report Suite. I know that you were not a fan of the slow part of that, that you like the Let It Grow section. Mm-hmm. I think you've come around a little bit on the beginning of Weather Report Suite. I think you yeah. probably still re- prefer Let It Grow. But yeah, I really liked this Let It Grow a lot. It has like a cool kind of like Spanish feel to it, almost like Santana at yeah. times that I really dug. I also feel like this is an example of Jerry just whipping on guitar.
I don't know if you feel like it's too fast. Like for me, it wasn't too fast. I, I really liked it. And again, yeah. I, I just think it's such a great showcase for Jerry's guitar playing. I mean, this is, I think, probably the most up-tempo track on the whole record. Right. right. I don't think anything on the second disc is quite as fast as this. No, man. This is, I mean, it's so fast that Bob can barely get the words out yeah. <laughs> when he's singing, like the chorus part, especially. Yeah, no, it rides like right on that line for me where, hey, you know, Let It Grow isn't a song where I, you or I have, I think, strong feelings about the right tempo in the sort of eyes no. of the world sense of the word. But yeah, I mean, it's like, to me, it's just impressive that it's a very long set. This is the 12th song of the set, and they still just have a ton of energy to like blaze through this because well they've they've, they've stored it up after playing it must have been the roses and cc <laughs> yeah like they haven't really whipped ass it's like they're yet. recharging their batteries yeah yeah because like you know one of the things i like worry i dread when i go into an 80s or a 90s dead show is that the first set just kind of feels like an afterthought like this is just us almost like a sound check like we're just warming up here we're gonna play six songs they're gonna be kind of slow there might be a special moment but there's not going to be anything to write home about. But that doesn't seem to be the case in 82, because, you know, even I was like, wow, 12-song set, maybe that's another reason why this came out. It must have been something special. But, uh, you know, all the other shows I was looking at in summer 82 had 10, 11, 12-song first sets. So they weren't phoning in the first set yet. Uh, And this is really showing that, like, you know, again, Jerry, if he's tired, if his throat is tired, uh, his hands certainly are not, because he is, as you say, just blazing through this let it grow from start to finish and it really uh, rocks it's, it's exhilarating yeah i it mean it rocks I, hard man like i i yeah. really dug it this is like one of the highlights for me for sure mm-hmm. definitely the highlight i think of the first disc because i i like the opening but i do think that by this time and then leading into the second disc they're really locked in at this mm-hmm. point and you really yeah. i really feel like they turn a corner with this let it grow that leads into what we're going to hear on disc two. I'm going to stick to the music never stopped trickery sandwich. Well, you like, you this like, being my favorite. Cause I like the, you like I like the, the novelty. Hijinks. You like the yeah. hijinks. And I like the <laughs> idea of it. I think it was cool. I liked hearing it, but I just yeah. think from a performance standpoint, this is right. the highlight for me of the first disc. said this before i'll say it again i think this disc is good as hell although i am going to have some criticisms of things that they might have done if they had taken a survey approach right to this versus doing a complete show but we start off with a china writer and you know it's interesting because you know the dead they went through a period obviously where they did china writer a lot and they didn't do it for a while and i think for one of the 77 shows that we talked about i think it was the 1229 
77, which I think was Dick's Picks 10. I think that was a show like where they played China Rider and people got really excited and then they kind of it was like the it. bust out of it for the first time in yeah. a, a couple it, years. Yeah. And it seemed like they kind of like screwed it up. Like it was mm. like it was wasn't that great for a China yeah. Rider. So you always wonder like, well, is it gonna have the same zest of like an early 70s China writer if you can hear right. something in the 80s or something or they get or is this just like a crowd pleasing thing that they're going to phone in and people will be excited to hear it but it won't be anything to write home about I got to say I thought this China writer was excellent I loved mm-hmm. it and I really think like that jam between the two songs where Jerry and Brent are just vibing on each other is so good I loved it, and it is really those two guys feeding off each other and taking that song to another place. I saw it on the disc, and I'm like, oh, I like China Rider, but I think I might have felt like, oh, this is probably going to be a little perfunctory. And I was very pleasantly surprised by how much I liked what they were doing here. I don't know Mm. if I'm going to say it's up to the standard of like a prime era, early 70s China Rider, but it's damn good. And again, mm-hmm. the Jerry Brent connection, you know, that, that chemistry that they had, it's on full display. I mean, it's another place where I really had to recalibrate because we've had just recently, we've had a 72 China writer. We've had a 74 China writer. So we're talking absolute peak era. Barry Bonds in the 2000s versions of China writer. It is really hard to like get out of, you know, comparing <laughs> apples to apples with anything else. But yeah, the the more I listen to it, it's the same experience. The more I liked it, uh, I think it really shows how much Brent's had blended into the band by 82, right? So we've, we've talked about just his ability to play off the other band members, to like lift them up into, you know, interesting new spaces or higher gears. You know, I mean, he's on piano here instead of organ, but it's the same kind of thing where you hear him mirroring some of Jerry's lines. 
which I think is something that Jerry got annoyed with with Keith in the end. I remember reading that Keith would just play whatever Jerry was playing back at him. Brent does the same trick, but he'll do it like once and then like jump off into a new zone, which then Jerry will grab the baton and take that into a new zone. And they'll just kind of like, they'll go back and forth. I wrote in the notes that you can practically see the gifts <laughs> because it just, it sounds, it is the sound of Jerry like doing his little coy smile over at Brent's on the side of the stage and then Brent doing like a head wag back at, at Jerry and like just the like Jerry Brent love fest, which I think a lot of those gifts come from an Alpine show, right? Aren't they mostly from that uh, downhill from here show in 89? I think that's right. Yeah, because Brent's got that vertical stripey shirt on like i think that's from that dvd but yeah it's so good i mean it's like what i want from a china rider is to just be totally lost in that middle zone right to the point where you don't know which whether you're in china or a rider or what's going on and i love that this version gets there so well that even the place where they denote the track break on the dicks picks is kind of wonky. Right. Yeah, they're still jamming. It doesn't yeah, go yeah. I know you're right or right away. Like, it doesn't even have, like, a clear demarcation points. Uh, usually they started, I think, when the I Know You Writer, like, vocals come in, or, like, just before that, when they or that riff. the chords. Yeah, you yeah, can start yeah. hearing that riff that you know it's I Know You Writer. But, yeah, it yeah. doesn't... It doesn't yeah, it, it's hard to know where one song ends and the other begins. I mean, yeah. that is the best part of that jam. If you're nailing that jam, it does feel seamless, doesn't feel like it, there's a clearly delineated point. Yeah, it, it, it's great. And, you know, again, I said this earlier, I'll say it again. I think Brent is the MVP mm-hmm. of this album because you have him working so well with Jerry on the China Writer. And then we get to Man Smart, Woman Smarter here, <laughs> which is a Dick's Picks debut. Right. And uh, it's a Calypso standard that was recorded by a variety of artists. It's probably most associated with Harry Belafonte, right. who uh, was a huge star in the 50s of music and film and other venues. Uh, but it's also been recorded by Joan Baez, which I cannot <laughs> imagine what that sounds like. It's also recorded by The Carpenters, right. which would be a trip to. Then you have Chubby Checker, Robert Palmer. <laughs> what uh, era Robert Palmer are we talking about? Probably in the 70s. You, <laughs> okay, have, you, yeah. have, have you heard those like records he did like with Little Feet and stuff? As oh, yeah, yeah. Band? Like, that, that, those are great records. Like, he has a whole backstory to, like before his 80s prime where yeah. Oh, yeah. he was making like, like really cool records. records a lot. Yeah, yeah. really funky, uh, cool, kind of like blue-eyed soul type records. Um Homer Simpson and Marge Simpson sang this song on an episode, like one of the Treehouse of Horror episodes. Right, yeah. So they've covered this song. I mean, look, you see the title. It's such a corny title. You know, the the person who wrote us asking us to give this song some love, he likened it to Ico Ico. It right. seems like an almost identical song. It has that same kind of party song slot. Yeah. In when the, they're not singing, it sounds like the exact same right. jam and chords, basically. <laughs> right. So it seems a little redundant to me, but um, yeah. It also has like that Samson and Delilah type vibe to it, too. Like they all kind of have that same shuffling beat, you know, mm-hmm. party song type thing. Anyway, I think we both saw this on the track list and we were like, oh, shit. Man, smart, <laughs> woman, smarter. But I really like this performance. And I think what I like about it is that it's... Bob and Brent singing together, which was a mm-hmm. thing that really became sort of like a dude's rock moment yeah. in 80s dead set list. And you mentioned Cassidy earlier. Like, that was probably the best showcase for those two singing together. You know, we don't get Cassidy here. I wish we could get a Cassidy, but we're getting Man Smart, Woman Smarter. And just them playing off each other is so fun. Mm-hmm. And I love, again, being able to hear Brent 
in more of a you know he's sort of like a co lead singer here, right? And that's what that's really the only example of that we're, that we get in this show. So it's like, oh, okay, I'm hungry for Brett vocals. I'm so hungry that I will eat this man smart woman smarter and enjoy it with a smile on my face. Yeah, yeah. A little behind the scenes, thirty six from the vault content here is that we have like a Google Doc where we dump all of our notes in. I'm always kind of like resistant. I, d- I don't always want to read what you put in there before we record so that I d- like there's some mystery about what you're going to say. But I usually do. Uh, and sometimes what you write in there tips me over on a song. And like describing it as the dude's rock energy mm. absolutely was like put the puzzle pieces together for me where I'm like, yeah, this is just maybe ironically given the message of the song uh, just feels like a very like testosterone version with Bob and Brent really selling it to a point that it wins me over a bit. But not like in a toxic way. Like in a No, no, like, no, no, no. Yeah. You know, like two bros hanging out having fun. Yeah. You know, like arms around each other, tipping a couple back, having a good time. Like that's the vibe of this song for me. Right. It's and a party I really song. Like it. Yeah. And yeah. And, and just those two guys singing together is like perfect. It's like the two right. I don't know if it's accurate to call Brent fun loving, because he wasn't really a fun loving <laughs> guy, but on stage he was, you know, an exuberant presence. And right. again, I think that's one of the things as you see as the eighties goes on, he gets more and more exuberant. And so if you're a Brent fan, that's like a great thing about right. him. Like it kind of lightens up the mood of this band that can be at times like a little dour, you know, like if they're mm-hmm. singing death ballads, it can be a, a little heavy, which is great. But then to let to, to leaven that with like this bearded soul man who's just throwing himself into a song with a lot of verve and spirit, it's like great. Mm-hmm. And uh, we don't get as much of that as I would want in this show. You know, I, I, I could go for more of that, but I really like getting it here, even if the song itself is a little corny. Mm-hmm. One thing that I like about this show, even though it doesn't have a Brent song, you can hear him like trying to seize like whatever space he can right so especially on this disc i think because in china rider too like in the part of i know you rider where they're all singing together like brent at some points is the loudest one of the three <laughs> that are singing right so he's kind of co-lead vocals in i know you rider like one of the oldest grateful dead songs and again it's like this 180 swerve from the previous keyboardist where keith was almost you know like a wallflower to some extent like he you had to like really prod him to step up and take a lead, just piano solo. Obviously, he didn't sing very often, but like he was not aggressively, you know, seizing whatever space he could. And I appreciate this here because, like, we're talking about Jerry's voices for maybe it's just this night, maybe it's like a a more of an '80s pan '80s dynamic. But Jerry's voice is on the wane a little bit. Uh, so here you got Brent, like he's not afraid to step up and really belt this stuff out. Um, we had some debate over whether Jerry or Bob sings the I wish it was a headlight on a northbound train line. Um, it is it is Jerry in like the reverb tunnel that we talked about earlier. But that's the kind of line that you could imagine Brent just selling the shit out oh, of. Oh, man. Right? <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Like, I, I, I could like go for Like if for some reason Jerry could not sing it, Bob could sing it and Bob sings it now, I think, uh, with Dead & Co. And it's great. But man, to hear Brent oh, rolling yeah. in with the Michelob voice singing oh, that, yeah. that oh, would yeah. that would bring down the... Uh, Bring down the house. So I like that. You know, even though we don't get a Brent song here, he is still uh, definitely asserting himself. After that, we have Ship of Fools. I think we can move through Ship of Fools, right? Yeah, I, it, it's a bummer. I, like, it's not a great version after the 70s ones we just heard. I mean, like, we're waiting to get the plan, you know, because we have this great opening. 
which is great and the energy is great and then ship of fools it again it feels like we're going back to that slow mid-tempo part of the first disc where it's a little sleepy let's move on to playing Mm-hmm. And you know we get we get an extended playing section here where we have playing, and then we, we go into drums, then space, then the wheel, and playing in the band. So this is the you know, I guess like the the centerpiece of the second disc. And I'll just say broadly, I mean we'll break this down. I said before I think this disc is good as hell. I'm gonna keep saying good as hell to describe <laughs> this. I think it's the best way to describe it's an the appropriate disc. Uh, descriptor. Yeah. So I really like. This section again, it is an interesting comparison to some of the plans that we've had recently. I mean, this is a song we've had a lot recently. We've had too, a lot yeah. of plans, like Sugary. We've had a lot of plans. We've had some outstanding plans. I think we would agree this isn't up to the standard of plans in the seventies. I mean, it's a pretty high standard. I think it's yeah. a really strong plan. And I, I, when I say plan, I'm including all of these bits that are in the middle. I do think that this could have been replaced though with something else, and maybe I should wait to talk about that until we break this down because <laughs> I don't want to like, cause we should give it its due first, I think. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it's not, not bad by any means. It's I really mean, it's, good. No, it's good. Yeah. It's really strong. It's a, it's a different animal from these ones we've heard previously. Cause we got the really intense, concise 72 versions. We got the really long 74 versions and now we're getting back to sort of 72 conciseness but with, I think, more of like the jazzy approach of 74, right? It's not a barn burner. It's got kind of a f- slightly fusion-y uh, touch to it. Yeah. Again, a- more good Jerry Brent interplay. Good Bob comping too. Can't hear Phil at all. <laughs> so I don't know what he's doing. Well, I think that's the tape. Because didn't it say yeah, like yeah. The, the tape was bass deficient? So yeah. We didn't listen to... Did you listen to any audience tapes of this i wonder i, I did not know i just that'd be interesting to, to listen to that i would imagine you can hear phil more mm-hmm. on an odd mm-hmm. than you can hear on this and in contrast to my love of the music never stop sugary sandwich in the first set i'm i'm kind of i'm unmoved i guess by splitting up play in here i've liked this in the past and talked about how i liked it i, I think in i looked it up in 1982 they split up playing where they did a play-in sandwich with drums in space or something else in the middle. They did it 12 times. And I think you said there were 60-some shows. So 20% of the time you were going to hear a play-in split up like this in 1982. So it kind of feels a little contrived, I think, at this point. And you don't really get a big rush from them going back into play-in. But what I will say is that I really like the wheel inside this play-in sandwich. And actually, this is a, like the one place where I could hear and appreciate what Phil was doing. I don't know what is different about the mix for the wheel, but they this is the wheel in sort of its classic post-drum space slot. And I think the wheel is one of the best songs to come out of space because it happens in this version too, where you get the discordance, really avant-garde, experimental part of space. And then it like twists very subtly into more of a beautiful melodic jam. And then eventually Phil takes over with some like really loud bass soloing and you're into the wheel. So I, th- I agree with you. I think I know what you want to replace this play in with. And I think I would agree with you, but I would miss having the wheel here, especially because this is the only 80s wheel we get. And I think the 80s was a really strong time for the wheel. Again, because Brent is singing the hell out of it. Maybe the loudest person singing this sort of group vocal on the wheel. And I just think it, it suits their sound very well at this point in time, even more so than those 70s versions, which never really live up to the Garcia uh, studio version.
Yeah, I, I, I'm with you on all that. I and I, I actually like the space too. I mean, I think the space is like pretty out there and evil sounding, which is what you want from space. In the, 80s. the drummers stay out, which is nice. Like I always like when the drummers are there for a chunk of space, at least, because yeah. it keeps it moving. Yeah, it goes from space, like you said, this sort of evil mindfuck type jam, and then into the wheel, more of this, you know, kind of jubilant song. It's a great contrast in how they segue from one to the other. I like all that stuff, but I will say, as much as I like this, again, I think it's good. I think this is this disc is good as hell. What made me like this a little bit less is when I listened to the next night show, August 8th at Alpine, and in the second set, they do a Scarlet Fire, and then they do an Estimated, and then with with a long jam. And that is so damn strong. Like, the Scarlet Fire is so good. And, you know, maybe that would have made this track listing a little more chalky to have, you know, a China Rider and then, like, a Scarlet Fire, like, on the same disc. But who cares? (laughs) <laughs> it would have been great. And I will say yeah. that that's so good. And I would encourage all of you to listen. Go on re-listen. Listen to August 8th. It's a great show from top to bottom. But the second set, I think, is really good. Now, it's I feel like the second set, there's maybe a little bit better than 8-7. You know, maybe just because the Scarlet Fire, then the Estimated is, is so good. Um, and they do the other one. Yeah, it gets a little wild after Drum Space because John Cipollina is there. Right. And not particularly present. Like, he's a little hard to pick up in the mix. Zakir Hussein is also there on the drums. So you're getting a bunch of guests, I guess, which is maybe a reason against putting it out as a Dick's Picks. Other than the Bo Diddley set, they don't really seem to do yeah. guest shows. But um, but I don't know. I think I think you could have done an 878 mm-hmm. survey set yeah. and included that stuff on the second disc. You know, keep it two discs, but take the best from 88 and add it to the best of 87. Mm-hmm. I feel like that might have been a little bit of a stronger collection than what we had got. As much as I like this, I think that would have maybe improved it a little bit. Yeah. I mean, Scarlet Fire sounds so good, I think, in this era. I mean, it reminded me a little bit of that 83 Scarlet Fire we heard on Dick's Pick 6, but it doesn't have the like aggressively artificial plunky piano. <laughs> it's similar to the China Writer jam where, again, you know, you feel like like Brent is like really present, you know, mm-hmm. and he's playing Keith-like piano, but maybe yeah. in a little more aggressive way. And like the yeah, the Brent Jerry interplay there is great too. Yeah, and then the uh, the the jam after Estimated is awesome. I yeah. mean, this this is the era where Estimated always went into eyes. So like Scarlet Fire, Estimated Eyes. I think they do that at that Austin show, the seven thirty one show, uh, which is really good, despite the eyes being berserk but this one it's like they never even find their way to eyes they just keep going with estimated uh into drums so it's one of these like sort of classic 80s 90s pre-drums jams but it's really good you get some just crazy bob falsetto scatting right (laughs) and that estimated which is maybe a strike against it but hey you know, it's it's reflecting the era, right? I was I was digging. The, I mean, it was part of the vibe <laughs> of that song. I, I, I yeah, think, I, I think it was cool. Yeah, I mean, definitely check out eight eight eighty two, or maybe don't because it might ruin Dick's Picks thirty two for you a little bit. You might <laughs> no, feel, check out this whole summer. Like, use this as an stuff. excuse to get into summer of eighty two. That's there, there's a lot of good shows from this era. Like again, like eight six eighty two. I think the show before this one, I think, is really strong. You know, again, I keep keep talking about Jerry's voice being a little tired. I think, but. I mean, it's not egregiously tired. He's not hoarse. You know, it just sounds like a no. little strained at times. And just because you're so used to Jerry having like one of the most comforting fo- voices in, in rock and roll. It's such a soothing voice. It's a little more ragged here. But again, 
guitar is just on fire. And yeah, 8-8, definitely check that out. Um, we get into Morning Dew after this. And, you know, this is a song we haven't heard in a while. And of yeah. course, you're always happy to see a Morning Dew. And I have to say, like, the, the quiet parts of this song... I really like a lot. I mean, I, I normally like the the quiet parts, but like in this version in particular, what Jerry is doing and like when it when it comes down really low, I think is the highlight of the song. I think overall, it feels like a little disappointing. Maybe it doesn't quite have the gravitas of what you want from this song, where you have the quiet part and then it builds to you know these great peaks that just blow you away, and you're not really blown away. I think by this version. Yeah, I'm kind of a broken record on this show, but it, it's another one that feels fast, like too fast in a way, where it took me a second to adjust <laughs> to hearing Morning Dew at this speed. Like it really feels like those great 70s Morning Dews, again, like the like Sugary, I guess. They just have so much space. Jerry is just very, the, the, the words are just slowly coming out, whereas here it feels like he's like checking off versus like he, he's kind of rushing through him a little bit. Um, I think that is probably a good choice after listening to this or, uh, multiple times because, like I said, the, the my least favorite parts of this show are the slow songs. I didn't find a lot of things to complain about with the two drummers in this show, which is another thing that surprised me. But it does kind of show up, I think, in like Ship of Fools, or it must have been The Roses, where they're just too busy for the material. Like, they're not letting it breathe. They're just kind of all over the place. So if you did a really slow morning do here, I, I imagine I would be irritated by the drummers not being able to play with subtlety. So playing it a little fast maybe patches over that, which is good. But it is it is hard to adjust. Like, they do break it down to this really quiet part. This is a moment in the show that it helps being able to put myself you know, in the experience of being at Alpine Valley late at night, you know, we're here at the end of the show. It's, we're probably pushing 10, 30, 11 o'clock. One thing about Alpine Valley, me being in Chicago, maybe this isn't as big a deal to you, but like one thing that always strikes me about Alpine Valley is how beautiful the night sky is. Like you're away from, far enough away from the city. You don't have light pollution. You can see the stars, right? So some of my favorite fish moments at Alpine Valley are very quiet jams where like if I was on the lawn or if I'm in the pavilion and I look back, like you can just see this like gorgeous like starscape. And so that's that's where I'm putting my head when you get to this quiet part of this morning dew, like just imagining, you know, maybe at this point laying down on the lawn, <laughs> uh, staring up at the sky, hearing this very gentle part of the song after a very, very high energy set. Uh, for the last three hours and just really like feeling that relaxed, chill vibe.
You can kind of hear the crowd here for the first time on the entire set. It's another thing about having the soundboard cassette master that you rarely hear the crowd during this show, but like you can kind of hear them having that sort of, you know, uh, almost religious experience at the end of a, a, a very good Grateful Dead show in a very beautiful setting. So it ends up working for me for all those reasons. So we go from the religious experience of Morning Dew to one more Saturday night yeah. and U.S. Blues. I don't have a whole <laughs> lot to say about these songs. I guess I'm happy that we're not getting double buried yeah. at the end of the show. That's what I'm realizing with all these One More Saturday Nights that we're getting this season is that they are absolutely taking the place of Johnny Be Good or Around and Around. So if only for that, I appreciate hearing One More Saturday Night because it, it saves us from hearing our like... 24th around and around you know, <laughs> in I'm, these episodes. I'm going to say, too, you know, speaking to what you were saying earlier about how to get out of Alpine in a timely manner. Yeah. I think we're leaving during U.S. Blues. I think we hear the U.S. Blues. I think we're running up the hill at this point and getting to our cars. Right. It's helpful if the band playing Alpine Valley plays kind of a uh, phoned-in encore. Oh, yeah. Because then you don't feel so bad about trying to beat the beat the rush. Oh, yeah. You know, if, uh, if Fish is playing, you know, Character Zero, I'm out of there. <laughs> like, I'm running up the hill. I'll listen to it on my way to the car so that I'm not sitting there for six hours after the show. So, yeah, we're out, we're, we're out of here then. I think we're, right, yeah. we're, we might even be leaving during one more Saturday night. We might be thinking, like, oh, this is well, it. I'm climbing the hill, probably. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, like, I'm climbing the hill. I'm turning around. I'm watching the band from the top of the hill. Like, I'm not right. running to my car yet. I'm kind of waiting to see if this is the last song. And it's like, okay, they're leaving the stage. They're probably going to come back one more time, and it's like, well, but maybe they'll do uh, something amazing for the last song. Maybe they're going to do like a dark star here, like surprises. But then you right. hear, you know, U.S. Blues, you're like, okay, yep. sprinting to the car. As the night is you, over. As soon as you hear the U.S. Blues riff, you're sprinting, <laughs> and you're seeing some other people in the know. Most people are staying, but the few people in the know, they're, they're sprinting to their cars during U.S. Blues, and hopefully you hear... The crowd cheering as you're in your car and you're driving away. You're <laughs> right. Like, you're like suckers. Right. Not cheering too hard because that means they're doing <laughs> something else. Uh, right, but right. Uh, yeah, cheering politely that the show is over and the house lights are up. Yeah. I mean, I guess in this era of Alpine Valley, you know, we could have been camping out in the parking lot. So that's true. You can you can take your time, listen to U.S. Blues. I think I probably got a hotel. I you know I'm not a huge camper, so I probably would have been like staying at a hotel about a half hour yeah. away. Yeah. I want to rest up for the next night. Don't want to blow my wad on right. the first night. Right, right. So, yeah, that's it for Dick's Picks 32. And now we have something very exciting planned. Our curveball episode is coming up. We always love to do curveball. We've been talking about what we're going to do for a curveball. Are we going to say what the curveball is, or, we, or should we surprise people? <laughs> I think we should, because it's not... It's not a big surprise, you know. We we. I feel like you were in denial. You were in denial about this for a long time about whether I was this in denial. We danced around it. We did that whole pre-tour episode that was kind of like, what are some other options here? But I think it was inevitable. We were talking about this since the first season. I feel like it's unavoidable that yeah, we do we... a curveball. Do you want to say it or should I say it? <laughs> the original guitarist of the Grateful Dead. That's the, a joke. <laughs> the founding guitarist of the Grateful Dead, John Mayer. <laughs> Yeah. It's going to be our curveball. And I got to pick the album here. I wanted to pick the longest John Mayer live record, which is Where the Light Is. <laughs> His double record from 2008 is a record I legitimately like. I'm a fan of this record. But I also know that there are things in this record guaranteed to annoy you, Rob. <laughs> we get, and maybe I don't even want to say it at this point. Right. But 
I also feel like you may come around on John Mayer listening to this because I do think it's a good live record. Yeah. But I also know that at least initially, there are things that are just going to make your skin crawl because the, there's just aspects that I know that you don't like that John Mayer like revels in musically on this record. Well, you know, in that sense, I think the timing here is fortuitous, right? I feel like <laughs> it's like um, when you tenderize your meat before you cook it. Yeah. Uh, Dixpix 32 has softened me up on I th- what I predict are some of the things you would imagine I was annoyed would be annoyed by yeah. with John Mayer. This is a very John Mayer-y Dick's Picks in some, in some sense. Uh, coming into this after a 1974 Dead Show would have would have been a little more difficult, but uh, uh, a 1982 Dead Show maybe eased me in a little bit. I have a couple questions for research purposes, because yeah. I know I'm not the like. I think there's a lot of listeners out there, too, that are skeptical about a John Mayer live release and want to prepare themselves. Yes. Want, to, want to gird their loins, as it were, uh, for this experience. All right. So, uh, Where the Light Is is a 2007 show, correct? Yes, from L.A. And it really covers the gamut of like his different styles. Yeah. It's like a special show where he does a bunch of different formats, right? Right. Acoustic. You got the blue set, which I'm really excited for you to hear. You have more of like a traditional John Mayer show. And I forget what else is on there, but it, I don't know. I mean, look, we don't want to talk about this too much right now, but I'll just say that I think John Mayer is a, uh, he's like the pop Dire Straits of the 2000s. I think okay. there's a lot of Dire Straitsy elements to John Mayer that maybe people who just look at him from a distance and don't know his music that well, you know, they think, oh, he, your body's a wonderland, daughters, these like sappy ballads that were really popular, but He's also, you know, doing a sort of pop bluesy thing that's less Stevie Ray Vaughan, although there's some of that. But there's a lot of stuff. Again, it reminds me of like the poppier end of what Dire Straits does, which isn't all that far removed from what the Dead were doing in the 80s. I mean, I think that there's more common ground there, even before he joined Dead & Co., Mm -hmm. than maybe the haters want to give credit for. But again... I want to talk about this record because I think it's an interesting record. People keep begging us to do Grateful Dead side projects, and we haven't done any of them. Yeah. This is the closest this we've gotten <laughs> to that. You know, people want JGB. Right. You know, they want, uh, you know, maybe like a Phil and Friends show or something. Note all that, but we are going to do a John Mayer. <laughs> like, I do have two quick research questions. Uh, we don't have to spend a lot of time on this, but uh, are there other John Mayer shows I should listen to? To give me the context for this show. Well, you know, let's let's talk about that uh, off mic. I mean, I, I've got some ideas that I can... Oh, okay. I'm just trying to bring in our uh, mayor skeptical listeners here in case they want to do the research with me. Well, you know, we can talk about it on Twitter. I don't want to, you know, we, we got to have some mystery here. I, let's, All right. So let's just... Let's just start with the live record first. I don't want to, okay. like, overwhelm people that maybe have a uh, dug deep right. into Mayer. But there is actually a lot of John Mayer stuff. I think he's on Relisten. I know there's some other apps... Yeah. That are maybe less prominent that you could get. I mean, like on Live Archive, I know there's tons of John Mayer stuff, especially from his most recent tour, mm-hmm. which is uh, interesting. But let's the just... Sob Rock tour. All right. So when the secret is out, let's you know, crawl we'll... before we can walk. You know. Okay. Okay. Let's just focus. On, I don't because you're already loading up on Live John Mayer here. Well, I mean, I'm just if I want if I'm going to do this, I want to do it right. So uh, let's start yeah. with this record. Okay. And we'll go from there. I don't want to. You know. Again, when you have when you have like a cute little baby. 
You're not giving the, you're giving the baby baby food. You're not giving them a, a three course meal yet. You know okay. we got we to yeah. move you along here into the mayor world. Even though this is literally a three course meal of an album, it sounds well. Like. <laughs> exactly, you're getting a double album of mayor, and, and you're asking for more. Like I, I right. I'm, I'm shocked. Absorb the double album first, and then okay. we'll, we'll go from there. So yeah, it's going right. to be a fun curveball. You know, maybe we'll learn something about how we feel about John Mayer. Maybe it'll just irritate Rob. Either way, I think we all will win. Right. I'm contractually obligated to do the the final four uh, Dick's picks, so this won't break me entirely, but it could come close. We'll see what happens. (laughs) I'm excited. Thank you for listening to this episode of 36 from the Vault. We'll be back, not with the dead, but with the Grateful Dead's original guitarist and founding member, John Mayer, in our Curveball episode. I cannot wait. (laughs) Looking forward to it with great anxiety. So we'll, we'll see you next time. hosted by me, Stephen Hyden, and Rob Mitchum, and produced by Osiris Media. It is edited and produced by Brian Brickman. All music is composed by Amar Sastry, unless otherwise noted. Logo design is by Liz B. Art Design. The executive producer of 36 from the Vault is RJB. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey friends, I'm Sharon McMahon, longtime government and law teacher, and on my podcast, Here's Where It Gets Interesting. I dive deeply into the stories you haven't heard about America's greatest thinkers and figureheads. I also interview many of today's leading cultural experts like Adam Grant, Ken Burns, and Patrick Radden-Keefe, who share their insights, challenge us to think in new and innovative ways. So follow Here's Where It Gets Interesting on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little a little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life. Uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. 
So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe for Grind podcast. Hey, what's up? This is Blake Wyland. I'm the host of the Tone Mob podcast. It's a show where I interview guitar people about guitar stuff. We talk about their pedals, their amps, their accessories, their preferences, all that stuff, as well as a healthy dose of whatever comes up. Topics have ranged from aliens to addiction and anywhere in between. Oh yeah, and pizza. We're definitely going to be talking about pizza. So get the show wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Just search The Tone Mob in your search bar and it will pop right up. Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out.